it's another great occasion, isn't it, to come together like the situation that brings us together tonight. We haven't gathered for merely an acceptable time of social encounter, but rather for a time of worship, a time of explicit consideration of those things that the God of heaven has spoken of and ordained and, yeah, even commanded relative to what He wishes and what He expects in worship. As we come together this evening, it's always a delightful thing, of course, to be thankful for the Christian fellowship we enjoy. I'd like to thank Miss Betty Boswell. She, uh, we had a good time today at lunch with her and appreciated very much circumstances like that one. And yea, those many others that bring you and me together on occasions like we can look forward to. As you know, the book of Genesis begins the book we call the Bible. <clears throat> And in that book we call the Bible, of course, 66 books in total in the first one. Not surprisingly, lays a foundation for which much in those later 65 books can not only be appreciated, but yea, even demanded as it explains and sets before us the truth in those remaining books. This opening slide, this introductory one, if you will, I hope will perhaps set before you and me tonight what I would wish us to consider relative to the lesson of the hour. The word Genesis means beginnings, and perhaps for good reason we can appreciate in that opening book of the Bible we have a number of things, the beginning of which is detailed. There's the beginning of the universe and, of course, all the things contained in it. There's the beginning of humankind. There's the beginning of nations. We have a record there of the beginning of sin. Now, that one's not a very pleasant one to read about, but yea, how informative it is. And not only that, there's the beginning of the ultimate redemptive plan which the God of heaven would one day from that time forward bring into play. A book of beginnings indeed. And yet, as you cast a spotlight on those beginnings, it still is the case, isn't it, that the book of Genesis offers some challenges to those that would be Bible believers. In fact, as you and I will uncover a few of those things over the next few moments, the situation is not at all unfamiliar. It is one that you and I often hear about. Let's, in fact, set the stage with these opening comments concerning it, and then we'll use the rest of our time to reflect upon these opening chapters in the book of Genesis. The situation proceeds somewhat like this. I've tried to ask you to consider that as... Even secular history casts a spotlight on things that occurred in the ancient day. To my knowledge, there are very few, if any, who would even so much as pose a question relative to Abraham or anything since his day. The things concerning Abraham are too well accepted. They are dated so carefully, even those that are not really that interested in the Bible in some instances, they would agree that there was a man named Abraham and he lived approximately 4,000 years ago. The problem is, Abraham is not the first character in the book of Genesis. And the immediate question that's asked, what about those chapters prior to him? We encounter Abraham at the end of Genesis 11 and the description in chapters 12 and following will have much to say about that man. And therefore the question arises, what about the first 11 chapters or so of Genesis? At this point, you might quickly take note of just a few of the things in those chapters. And I've tried to list some of the more magnificent ones, or at least the far-reaching ones. Isn't it true that in those 11 chapters, we read about the creation? 
in fact, Genesis chapters 1 and 2 primarily detail for us a remarkable and orderly creation on the part of God in which He, by virtue of speaking, brought about not only this universe but the orderly character of the things within it. That was in Genesis again, 1 and 2. That occurred in those spans of chapters, again, which some would begin to question or at least have an interesting viewpoint toward. But not only that, look at the next one. This earth on which we live, and of course much might be said about it, one can immediately begin to ask, well, how old is it? What age might be attached to this planet on which we live? And even in a broader way, what about the age that one might attach to, let's say, the solar system at large, or even the universe in total? Well, you and I know that according to Genesis, and again, it's found within these very range of chapters, that apparently the age of the universe and the solar system and the universe, all of it, would have to be numbered in no more than just a few thousand. What about the next one? You might appreciate that Adam and Eve are real people. One was, upon reading these first, first few chapters in Genesis, that conclusion is inescapable. They were not mere examples or figments or individuals who, in fact, were somewhat less than human in such a way that they occupied a position of only being figurative examples at best. That just won't do justice to the biblical text. They were real human beings. Genesis chapters 3 and 4 detail much about them their successes, their failures, their lot in life. The next one, we find in Genesis chapter 3 that this world that then existed was forever altered when the God of heaven judged it. You see, Adam and Eve chose to disobey the God of heaven, and in so doing, God not only brought a curse upon them for their behavior, but also on this planet. It was not the same afterward as it had been before. We today are still living beneath the sentence of that judgment. May I suggest to you as we close that slide, as one reads in Genesis chapter 5, we encounter the fact that these early individuals in Genesis lived a long time. Adam was 930 years old when he died. Methuselah, 969. Jared and Canaan and Mahalalel and the others, all of them well over eight and a half centuries. Today, that seems unfathomable to us, based on current lifespans at least. One by one, all of these things are found in those early chapters in Genesis, but that's not all. On this next slide, it is in the same midst of these chapters we read rather definitively about a circumstance in which a man, namely Noah, was given particular instructions to build an ark, a massive floating vessel, in which he not only would offer the opportunity by the power of God for the salvation of himself, but also the animals. The land-dwelling animals were salvaged from the raging waters of the flood. Again, notice that's in chapters 6, 7, and 8 of Genesis. One more time, something predated Abraham and did so by quite a few years. The next matter on the slide. Today, you and I know that one of the challenges that so often is offered concerning international matters is the variety of languages on this earth. So many different languages are recognized, and there are those that speak Chinese and English and Japanese, 
and Swahili and Indian and so many others, where did they all come from? Genesis chapter 11 tells about an event that happened at a tower, a tower known as Babel. And at that tower, we appreciate the God of heaven came down and He, in fact, confounded those languages. But might we notice that predated Abraham. One by one, as you appreciate all of these, and again, the span from chapters 1 to 11 of Genesis has at least briefly been mentioned. Perhaps it's time to note the closing part to that slide. I would ask you to consider this. You and I know well that the scientific presentation, in fact, it seems more often than not to be overwhelmingly accepted by the scientific community, and, and often as scientists accept it, it slowly but ultimately comes to be accepted by almost everyone else that this earth is just very old, that mankind, quite frankly, has been here for quite some time, but for a long time he was in some pre-human kind of state. He evolved, we're told out of something far less great than he. And you'll notice that in order to somehow fit all that time that's needed for evolution, we've just got to have more time than what appears to be presented in Genesis. So if I can't challenge anything from Abraham onward, my only hope is to challenge those first 11 chapters somehow. I've got to stretch them out over multiplied ages and eons of time. That way, if I can do that, I can hold the Bible in one hand and a science textbook in the other and perhaps satisfy my conscience that I can believe both of them. But you see, all of that rests upon doing something with these first 11 chapters of Genesis. What do we do with them? How must they be viewed and interpreted? And in what place do they occupy the position in the Word of God? You'll notice on that slide, There have been a number of presentations, and some of them are rather simple. They go like this. Those first chapters in Genesis are basically nice stories. Ancient people like Abraham made up these stories, and they told these beautiful stories that teach about Adam and teach about sin and teach about a flood. But we shouldn't think that it really happened. They were just nice things about like Aesop's fables. That's about what what one might compare them to. Is that reasonable? Is that plausible? Can one do justice to the biblical text that way? We'll study about that in a moment. Others have looked upon it. It's just figurative language. One doesn't need to believe there was really an Adam or an Eve, that there really was a Garden of Eden or an ark or a flood or a Tower of Babel or anything. Just take it for the lessons that are in it and don't expect any more out of it than that. Does that do it justice? Is that in keeping with the Word of God? One last thing. You perhaps are aware that that evolutionary scheme rests upon the simple premise. Except the fact that things change slowly over a very, very long time. Don't expect any rapid, sudden changes, but expect uniformitarianism, which is slow changes over an exceedingly long time period. Did you notice the lesson text for tonight had something to say about that? I would like to read it again from 2 Peter 3. As the inspired apostle had something to say about this very idea of thinking, it reads like this. 
Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. That's verses 3 and 4 of Second Peter 3. And quite frankly, it would be hard to find a better definition for geologic uniformitarianism than verse number 4. Notice what the scoffers were saying. For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Notice, there are some who say that the slow and very gradual changes that we observe today are the very kinds of things that have always been. There's never been any gigantic, momentous, sudden catastrophes or alterations of this planet. That's what we're told. The scoffers were saying that in Peter's day, but we know that runs op opposingly to things like a flood of Noah's day. It is with those things in mind, why don't we cast a spotlight at this point forward in the lesson to then looking again at those 11 chapters and asking, is it reasonable to interpret them in those ways I suggested? Can we say they're a myth? Can we say they're merely a figurative presentation? Or does the Word of God itself demand more than that? Our approach will be this. It is our desire for the Word of God to speak. We really don't care what human logic or analysis might assert. How does the Bible demand that we interpret those opening chapters of Genesis? And may I say that once that is laid before us, it leaves us no option. It clarifies it in a rather remarkable way. Let's begin this slide like this. How do the remaining Bible books refer to the book of Genesis? Notice again, there are 65 books that follow it. As you and I study those 65 books, we might ask, how do they refer back to Genesis' first 11 chapters? When allusions or quotations or references to Genesis 1 to 11 are made, are they made in such a way as if it was literal, actual, real history? Or do they open the possibility that it was a story, a myth, a figurative presentation? As you and I begin, might we note this? It seems to me the clearest and most beautiful example of all must be none other than the Son of God Himself. When our Savior was on this earth, when He was walking here in the flesh for those 33 years or so, when He referred back to Genesis 1 to 11, how did He do it? Did He refer to it as if it was real, actual, literal history? Or did he consider the possibility that maybe it was merely a made-up story, a myth, or a fine presentation? You'll notice in Titus 1 verse 2, God cannot lie. And since Jesus, of course, is God, whatever the Savior taught relative to these chapters must be taken as the correct viewpoint toward it. It is with that in mind that we come near the bottom of that slide. I've selected just a few of the times when our Savior referenced those chapters. Might we begin in Mark chapter 10, verse number 6. It was on this occasion that our Savior was questioned by some of that day, questioned about matters touching the character of the human family. Jesus answered in a remarkable way. I'd like to begin reading in verse number 6 of Mark 10. It says, in fact, I'll start in verse 5. 
And Jesus answered and said unto them, For the hardness of your heart he wrote you this precept, but from the beginning of the creation God made them male and female. As we pause at that point, what was the point the Savior made? As he answered that question that was propounded to him, he rather quickly noted from the beginning of the creation... God made them male and female. Does that sound as if Jesus was referring to a story? Does it sound as if He was referring to perhaps what was a kind fable? The Lord rather matter-of-factly and also rather definitively made reference to two things. First, from the beginning of the creation. He referred to the creative activities found in harmony with Genesis 1 and 2. And He also quickly pointed out God made them male and female quoting practically verbatim Genesis 1, verse 27. So might we at least in passing notice as Jesus made this illusion and then in reference, He spoke of it as if it was an actual event. That really happened. Look one verse further at verse number 7 and 8. For this call shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. So then they are no more twain but one flesh. As the Lord continued His presentation on that occasion, here He referred to Genesis 2. Again, it predated Abraham by centuries. And yet as He referred to it, He says, For this cause, note the prepositional phrase that begins verse number 7, In light of this creation and in light of those events detailing the character of the creation of woman, and God's setting forth of marriage. We notice this beginning origination of marriage is also found in those chapters, and Jesus refers to it as if it actually happened. There really was a woman named Eve, and there really was a man named Adam, and they really were married, and God did it. One more time, it sounds as if it was rather powerfully set forth as history. Note the third one in Matthew 24, verses 36 and following. This was fairly late in the Lord's teaching ministry. In fact, just a very, very few days before He was put to death. But wasn't it true that on that occasion He had been asked, What shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And as the Lord began to answer that question, the time came when He said, But of that day and that hour there shall be no signs given, for no man knows except the Father in heaven. He was speaking about His second coming, of course. And he said, not even the angels know when that's going to be. And as he presented that discussion, he said, For it will be as it was in the days of Noah. They were marrying and giving in marriage. What's this? Jesus said his second coming is likened unto an event that happened long before Abraham ever lived. The days of Noah. The days of the flood. And Jesus referred to it as if it was real history. There really was a man named Noah, and there really was a universal flood. And people were behaving then, much like what they will be behaving like as the end of time comes. Isn't it amazing that the Lord used an event back then as a teaching tool relative to His own second coming? What about the last one on that page? It's in that same context, but it has to do with the flood of the day of Noah. I suppose, second only to the creation, as it's revealed in chapters 1 and 2, the next greatest thing questioned in those chapters is the flood of Noah. 
there are those who will rather matter-of-factly laugh at you and me who literally believe that there was a flood. You really believe that there was a flood that literally covered the entirety of this planet? The highest mountains and hills were all covered? And you and I would quickly say yes. Others will smirk and somewhat want to change the subject. That's just fanciful notions in their mind. And yet Jesus used it as a likeness relative to the fact of, the com of His own second coming. At this point, as you can probably tell, to call into question these opening chapters of Genesis is to call into question many, many features and later events in the Word of God. In fact, doesn't it so far seem that if one were not to take these opening chapters in the way that they were presented, it looks to me as if you just as well throw out some of the things Jesus said, some of the things Peter affirmed, some of the things that Moses wrote about. It looks like you cast out part of it. Many of the others are going to have to go right with it. Look at this next slide if you would. And this point is an attempt on my part to develop that somewhat more thoroughly. I wonder how many times later in the Bible references are made back to the opening 11 chapters of Genesis. How many times and under what circumstances and in what teaching methodologies? As you notice at the top, many, many of the Bible writers, as far as we're able to tell, roughly 40 men over a period of 1,600 years, wrote what we call the Bible. And of those 40 Bible writers, many of them, as we're about to see, a large number, quote from chapters 1 to 11 of Genesis, and do so without apology, do so without hesitation. Why don't we look at just a few of the things referenced? Let's choose Adam for a moment. We understand so well that Adam is spoken of very directly in the opening chapters of Genesis, but not only there. Consider this fact. Adam is referenced as a real historical figure in eight later Bible books, five of them being in the New Testament. So it seems as if if we're going to call into question the opening chapters of Genesis, we should also call into question every one of the later books that refer to him as if he's a real historical figure. That means you've got to throw out five New Testament books. Not only that, consider Noah. Genesis chapters 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9 refer to Noah very clearly and on many occasions and speak of him as a real living human being. His father is given and so are his children. But not only the book of Genesis... Five later Bible books, five again of them being in the New Testament, refer to Noah. If we call into question these opening chapters of Genesis, why not throw out those other ones as well? At this point, I might pause to ask you to notice these five New Testament books, ponder where they are. Matthew's one of them. Luke's another one. Throw out two of the gospel accounts that tell about the precious life of Jesus Christ. The same books that tell about Jesus also tell about Noah. Look at the next one. As far as I was able to tell by way of counting, there are no less than 100 references or quotations throughout the remaining books of the Bible to Genesis chapters 1 to 11. 
Are we now going to cut out all of those chapters? Are we going to cut out all of those passages as well? Are we going to pretend that they too are not worthy of inspired consideration? One begins to see that so many later Bible references are squarely founded upon the real historical occurrence of those things in chapters 1 to 11 of Genesis. Not only that, look at the bottom. This one, at least for me, I found fascinating just as much as the others that have preceded it. Every single one of the chapters in Genesis 1 to 11, every one of them is referenced in the New Testament. Think about that a minute. So if we're going to call into question the opening chapters of Genesis, why not then call into question all 27 New Testament books? And may I submit to you, if we're going to throw those opening chapters in Genesis out of the Bible... Why not throw out all the New Testament with it? It all goes together, weaves a beautiful presentation of the story of the God of heaven as He shares with us not only His creative efforts, but what the human family pursued thereafter. The last observation on that slide is this one. I mentioned a moment ago that there are approximately 40 Bible writers. There are 27 New Testament books and there are 8 Bible writers of those books. All eight of the Bible writers of the New Testament refer back to Genesis 1 to 11 at least at one point. It's an amazing thing to consider, isn't it, how frequently the bedrock truths contained in Genesis 1 to 11 are utilized for the opportunity to understand the later developments in the Word of God. This next slide will take us to consider perhaps this approach in addition to those things. I entitled it Teaching Tools for the following reason. Isn't it amazing on occasion how the God of heaven can utilize a certain activity or a certain historical event as an opportunity to teach in terms of using that in another way in the future? We mentioned that a minute ago in one way. Now let's develop it again. Also, more carefully like this, there are a number of occasions throughout the Bible when events in chapters 1 to 11 of Genesis are used as teaching aids and tools for the explanation of something that's done today. Some appreciation of reality that is so vital to understand. I would ask you to begin with marriage. We understand from the Bible how vital, how essential, how important it is to appreciate what God's plan for marriage is. And although the human family has often gone astray in that point and often calls it into question, when the Lord was asked about this in Matthew 19, to what did He turn? There were those of that very day who had questions about, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? That's a legitimate question. Not only was it legitimate then, it still is. And the first words out of the Lord's mouth were, Have you not read? And he quoted from Genesis chapter number 2 in light of explaining the nature from God of marriage. May I say to you that you and I will never appreciate in fullness of the divine will, the character of marriage, if we fail to appreciate Genesis chapter 2. We never will. 
Jesus, in fact, pointed back to it, challenged those of His day so that they might never underestimate or fail to appreciate the God, God's teaching of it and how it was originated. Today, we still need that teaching. We can turn back to Genesis 2 anytime we wish and feel confident that that really is inspired history. It really did happen that way. And we can learn much about marriage by revisiting it. But not just marriage. What about the day of judgment? We understand, of course, in light of that, that's still at some point in the future. We know there's coming a moment when the affairs of time will close. The Lord Jesus Christ will return and the dead in Christ shall rise first. 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 13 to 18 tell us that. And all of us who are the changed saints, if we happen to be alive then, will look forward to rising to meet Him in the air and will ever be with Him. But you'll notice the day of judgment that then takes place. This time, this moment, this occurrence in which everyone will stand before the august presence of Christ and receive the deeds done in accordance to that done in their body. Notice what Peter did in 2 Peter 3. He used the realities of the flood of Noah's day to teach them about the day of judgment. Notice how he developed it. They died in the water, but there's going to be a time when it's going to be destroyed by fire and the same God overruled in power over both of them. That teaching is a very amazing thing. It helps us see, doesn't it, that there were a lot of similarities. That flood of Noah's day, there's going to be at least some similarity to this one. There's going to be a lot of people lost. Only few are going to be saved. The water buoyed up them on that occasion, those aboard the ark, and so too those buoyed up by faithful water baptism. They'll be the ones that'll have opportunity in the blessedness of salvation. As you think about those matters, look at the next one. Baptism. Baptism. We spoke about that as a part of our lesson this morning, highlighting the place it occupies as faithful service and obedience to the commands of the gospel. And yet in 1 Peter 3.21, baptism is likened unto the days of Noah. In other words, the Apostle Peter used the realities of the flood of Noah's day and the salvation available to those aboard that ark to help explain and elaborate on the truths contained in water baptism. May I suggest to you, those matters in Genesis 1-11 to are so vital because they form a bedrock foundation on which to appreciate so many truths contained in God's Word and verses and passages and chapters thereafter. But not only those, what about the next one? The death of our Savior. Can you think of any linkages that point the death of Christ back to these opening chapters of Genesis? It doesn't take but a moment to consider Romans chapter 5. The Apostle Paul, in his inspired character, presented to you and me the fact that as in one man, namely Adam, all died so too through one man named Jesus Christ shall all be made alive. Now Paul thought there was a real man named Adam who died because of his sin. And he said through another man who was just as real, the Son of God, all can be made alive. You see, we can't call into question those early chapters without greatly disparaging so many later Bible references. 
not only the death of our Savior, what about the very definition of faith? What does it mean to have faith? What does it mean to be a man or woman of faith? All of us know that we can't please God without it, Hebrews eleven six. But the question still is this, so what is it? What's required of you and me to be a person of faith? Have you ever thought about how the Bible answered that? Let me tell you, he says, what about Enoch and Adam and Noah? One by one, he lists these characters that long predated Abraham and said, if you want to know what faith is like, look at them. This man named Enoch, he walked by faith. That was long before Abraham's day. The occurrences concerning Noah, he by faith built an ark. There tells you about what faith is like. It does what God says to do in every circumstance. You see, even the very definition of faith, it seemingly is hinged in the great history, and the wonderful history it is, those early Genesis chapters. Perhaps finally, the role of women in public assemblies. Why do you and I remain so firm in not allowing a woman to preach to a mixed assembly? You and I, of course, believe that very strongly. And when Paul discussed that, to what history did he point? Did he turn back to the days of Jesus? Long before that. Did he turn back to the days of David? Long before that. Did he turn back to the days of Abraham? Long before that. When Paul gave the inspired will of heaven concerning this, he turned all the way back to Adam and Eve and described their behaviors in light of the scene of Genesis 3. You see, he affirmed that in 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 to 14. And here was one more element that we find etched in the history of Genesis 1 to 11. As we come to the close of that slide, I've tried to summarize what it seemingly is a very fair statement. If we compromise the opening chapters of Genesis, we no doubt will have to find ourselves compromising many, many, many of the chapters and references that follow it. It's not as if one can separate those chapters and put them in a little box and claim they have no regard for the things that follow it. For all the Bible, in so many ways, rests upon the events of those chapters. Let's close our lesson tonight. Let's do it with this summary slide. The book of Genesis is a vital book. We find in it the history, and a very real history. A history that gives us the beginning of so many things, including those matters we discussed in the opening of the lesson tonight. The beginning of nations, of the human family, of the universe, of sin, and of God's plan for redemption. Hints of it are all discovered and found there. But yet in the historical presentation of it, we find the following statement. I realize that there's a tendency in our modern world to compromise the early chapters of Genesis so that one can fit in things of modern description in science. But one must do injustice to the Bible to do that. God meant what He said, and He said what He meant. And as you and I then look upon verses like that, it reminds us that every word of God is tried, Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6. And it reminds us that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That includes chapters 1 to 11 of Genesis. 
and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. I hope you and I will be renewed in our appreciation of the opening chapters of Genesis and appreciate that the foundation laid therein is exemplified by so many chapters and references that follow. Tonight, are you and I faithful servants of the Master? Are we living in harmony with His will? If you're not, I pray that you'll recognize the urgency of this moment. Jesus died on the cross that you might be saved, but He, of course, now leaves that decision to you and me. Knowing the truth of God, why not rush to His side tonight? That plan of salvation, as we described it this morning, involves your belief in Jesus, the repentance of your sins, the confession of His great name as the Son of God, and then being immersed in water for the remission of your sins.